Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 14. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing five stories for you about suspicious scents, ritual resuscitation, ravenous revenants, paranormal playmates, and perilous pets. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first three terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us 
from author Chris Bertman. And it will meet a gentleman who can't quite put his finger on where the odd scent in his home is coming from and calls in professionals. When he discovers the source of the stench, it may be tough to determine what's more terrifying, what the odor is coming from or how its source got there. Without further ado, I present to you the smell. It was on the third day of the stench permeating the house that we decided to call the landlord. In the last month we had moved in, there had been a lot of creaking and groaning from underneath the house. It was built sometime in the 30s, so the noise just added to the creepy atmosphere. Kind of liked it. But considering the age, we figured the plumbing must have gone bad from expanding and contracting in the heat of summer. We hoped that the problem wouldn't be extensive. Our landlord was punctual and told us to expect the plumber by 8 a.m. the next day. The temperature in Palmdale was pushing 110 degrees that week. While intolerable, it wasn't breaking any records for the Southern Californian desert. Temperature was notable this late in September, though. Usually by this time of the year the heat would have broken, but it had been the hottest summer in recent years. Because the house was so old, there wasn't any central air conditioning. Instead, the owner had opted for smaller built-in AC units. They didn't make the house that much cooler until the sun went down, but it was cheaper than central air. We had lived in the Antelope Valley our whole lives. It wasn't the best place to grow up, but it was home. Town had deteriorated in the last ten years, and there had been an influx of homeless and vagrants in the area lately. But the price was a steal, and we couldn't turn it down. When we moved in, I'd placed a plank of wood over the opening to the crawl space to keep the dogs from venturing underneath the house. Every couple of days, when I would walk past the side of the house, I would notice the plank had been knocked over. We had two small dogs. It was odd to think that they were able to knock down the plank, though, as I had seen them do stranger things. After a few weeks, I was tired of putting the plank back up, so I placed some boulders I found in the desert in front of the wood to reinforce it. It seemed to hold up. I couldn't see the dogs being able to get past the boulders, Later on in the evening, we saw the dogs pawing and growling at the barrier. We laughed and joked how they were mad about not being able to get under the house. It had been almost a week, and I felt proud of my makeshift barrier. When I went to the side of the house to dismantle the facade for the plumber, I noticed there was a small hole just big enough for our dogs to fit through, right underneath the boulders and plank. Those damn dogs were resilient. I removed the wood and was assaulted by a wave of human-fetid air. Good Lord, smells like death under there, said the plumber. I offered him a nice cold bottle of water from the fridge. Thanks. You couldn't pay me enough to go down there with that rancid stench. We sat in the living room while the plumber worked. He wore the least he could get away with. Windows open, fans on high speed. I was kicking myself for not investing in a window-mounted swamp cooler like Dad had suggested. Ashley mentioned she was hungry, 
and I cracked a joke about her eating the rest of my leftover veal parmesan from the restaurant from last week. She swore she hadn't touched it, but I knew she had a habit of picking at my food. I let it go. We hadn't been shopping for groceries in a few days, so we made a plan to go after the plumber was gone. Hopefully it wouldn't be too hot by then. Whatever food we still had needed to be cooked, but to cook meant to turn the oven on, and even at 8 a.m. it was too hot to cook, not to mention the smell didn't give us much of an appetite. Jesus Christ! We heard the muffled panic through the thin wooden floor of the family room. I ran from the living room toward the back door and saw the plumber through the window stumbling from the side of the house in a panic, covered in filth, trying to regain his composure. I opened the door and stood in the doorway, anxious to hear how severe the problem was. He climbed the three steps to the patio towards me. What happened? I asked. "Uh, We need to call the cops, he said. What do you mean? He hesitated for a moment. There's a body underneath your house. That's what you're smelling. This isn't a plumbing issue. This is a hazmat issue. Do you have any idea how they got under there? When the police arrived, they cordoned off the house, but wouldn't let us leave. After their initial investigation, they confirmed that the body was in advanced stages of decomposition, though the coroner estimated that they had been dead for no more than a couple of days. The time of death didn't match the putrefied state of the body. We sat in the family room with the dogs. They licked our hands as we rubbed them for emotional comfort, waiting for the police to question us. They didn't mention it, but I knew the police saw us as persons of interest based off the questions they asked. How old was he? What was his name? Did we know who he was? We didn't know. They left after finding that our story couldn't corroborate any suspicion of foul play. We stayed with Ashley's parents, who lived in town, while the house was being sanitized by the hazmat team. No more than a week had passed before the coroners had finished their report. They identified the man as Jesus Paez, 66. The police confirmed his identity as one of the local homeless. The coroner mentioned that his body had bits of flesh, missing at various locations. Hyperthermia was the cause of death. He must have crawled under the house and the heat killed him. They suspect that he had been living underneath the house for a while and either fell asleep or became trapped there as the temperature rose. I thought about the plank of wood and the boulders I set up, and it all came together. The noises, the missing food, the smell. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. 
Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> this is Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. I'm Steve Taylor, your host to a horror anthology podcast where we ask you to depart from your safe perception of reality to descend with us into the frightening depths and dark corners of twisted imaginations. With carefully curated original tales of terror each week, our deepest rooted fears are brought to the forefront by a diverse cast of voice talent and masterfully eerie sound design that bring these stories to life. We'll give you tales of unnerving encounters with the occult, harrowing hauntings, and sinister seances that show just how darkness knows no bounds. If you're like us here at Chilling Tales and enjoy feeling your stomach filling with dread as dastardly demons dance in your head, make sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe now to always be the first to enjoy the horror show. I hope you enjoyed The Smell by author Chris Bertman, as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a second terrifying tale for you. This one from author N.M. Brown. In it, we'll meet a man who's found a truly unusual way to keep his marriage alive, day after day. The problem is, it never stays that way for long. Without further ado, I present to you... A ritual misguided. I've been a widower for exactly six years now. I was blissfully married to a woman named Ava for 15 amazing years. We didn't have much in the beginning, but we were happy that way. She always said she'd rather struggle with a man that she truly loved than to have luxury with a man she didn't. Ava was good to me that way. Never made me feel bad about anything. I'm sorry. Anyway, six years ago today, she was taken from me. It was February 14th. I wasn't feeling well, and she had gone to the natural food market to get me some tea. Ava always made tea when I was sick. Pampered me just like a loving mother would. She was just going down one of the aisles, and whoosh, her life snuffed out like a candle's flame. 
My wife just dropped dead right there in the spices section. Thirty-four years old. She was healthier than I was. Just like that, one aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage later, and she was gone forever. I tried to make it on my own, but I can't. Food has no taste. Water quenches no thirst. And sleep provides no rest, not without Eva. I prayed to heaven, to hell, to anyone that could bring her back. Finally, I resigned myself to the wonders of the Internet. After days of searching, I finally find something, a kind of ritual. I have nothing to lose, and worst-case scenario, nothing happens other than I've wasted some time and money. The items are collected and the ritual performed. I feel no different after, still just exhausted in every way one spirit can be. Trying not to get my hopes up, I go to bed. After a fitful sleep, a cold, empty bed greets me in the morning. I guess I really don't expect much different. Refusing to succumb to my dejection, I surrender myself to my daily routine. I drive to the store to buy some food for the dog and a pack of smokes. It was the one thing I wasn't able to do when Ava was alive. She hated smoking, especially the smell on my breath. Ashtray kisses, she'd say. The day was gorgeous but felt heavy for me for some reason. I guess everything feels heavy these days, though. When your only purpose for the last 15 years has been to make someone happy, what do you do with yourself now that that purpose is gone? Halfway through the day, the door makes a strained squeak as I hear it open. I descend the stairs, confused but hopeful. There she is, my beautiful Ava. She looks amazing, younger than she did when she died, if you can believe that. She places a bag of groceries down on the counter and takes out a box of tea. Babe, what happened to the car? I drove it to the store. When I came out, it was gone, she explains. I had to call one of those Uber things. The guy had packs of Cheez-Its in his car. I got your tea, by the way. She kisses my cheek and pauses. Hey, Maddie, did you do something different with the house? It looks so gloomy in here. Open some shit up. Come on, let's light in. Wait, what were you smoking? Yeah, open the door, but leave the screen closed. She flirtatiously glares at me, then proceeds to flit about the house, cleaning and arranging like no years have passed at all. Cautiously, I walk up to her and touch her face, half expecting my hand to pass right through her. It doesn't, though. Her warm face nuzzles into the groove of my hand, and her eyes close, absorbing the love of my touch. I hug her fiercely, and we made love like we hadn't in years, literally. I can't stop staring at her. My heart is so caught up in the relief from its torment that I can't bring myself to question everything now. 
Let me enjoy this first. Doubt can come tomorrow. Twelve hours have gone, and suddenly Ava screams. Her bones contort, and her eyes freeze over. She clutches her heart and drops off the bed, rigid by the time she hits the ground. I faint, wake up, and it's morning again. Ava is lying there on her side, smiling at me, with no recollection of the night before. That first morning, I rush her to the doctor, explaining what I saw the previous night. They both stare at me with bewildered faces. Ava swears to him that she feels fine, and suggests that maybe I'm the one who needs to be checked out, as if this was the time for jokes. I watched her die. After everything comes back normal, he sends us home, but not before giving me a list of recommended therapists that accept our insurance. The rest of the week continues. Other than being a little more withdrawn due to plaguing images of a dying wife, things are great. I start to enjoy her more and more, my suspicion shrinking smaller and smaller every day that went by. After all, this is what I prayed for. She's back in my life. She didn't come back a rotted corpse. She's not full of evil carried over from the other side. She's just Ava. It was exactly one week to the day that she returned when I'm robbed of my security. The catch to my bargain was like the hand of death gripping at my throat. We're out driving and decided to pull over and go for a walk. The sky's just beginning to fill with the colors of the fading sun. Ava drops her phone on the sidewalk. When I bend to retrieve it, she moves over to allow me room to do so. Just then, a truck swerves to avoid something large in the roadway, and Ava is hit. Maddie, I love you! She cries out seconds before impact. I see the beautiful blue of her eyes get lighter and lighter as her life fades. The crimson pool surrounding her blends in with her auburn hair. I call for an ambulance to hold my love as I wait for help. Even though I know there is none. Nothing can help her now but the sweet release of the afterlife. They take her away, and I sob hard. You would think the agony of seeing my wife die for the third time would take on an almost surreal kind of element to it. However, it becomes more and more devastating each time that it happens. Am I in hell? It feels that way, but I haven't really done anything in my life to deserve such a fate. Not to mention, I'm most definitely sure I'm not dead. My pounding headaches and constant sweat-stained nightmares make me sure of that. I awake the next morning once again to the chill of a cold, empty bed. This time, though, I smell bacon. I can hear Ava's lovingly tone-deaf voice singing from the kitchen. All you gotta do, man, hold her when you want to squeeze her. Don't tease her. 
Never leave her, get to her, got, got, got to try a little tenderness. I smile as I recognize her favorite song. However, as much as I want to rush to her, hold her and join in song, I cannot move. My mind has a moment of true insanity. Like the kind where you don't know if you're in a dream or you keep dreaming about waking up from a dream but you're in another dream. It's madness. My mind shuts down as I struggle to sort out reality from its alternative. I continue to lay there motionless in a pool of sickly sweet-smelling sweat. Week after week she leaves me, all in different ways. Seems like the more I try to keep her safe, the more violent her deaths become. She chokes on a homemade dinner I make her the first week of September. She's struck down by a seizure that causes cardiac arrest in the middle week of October. The 3rd of December, I thought I finally beat it. She lays down next to me and just falls asleep. There's no blood, no screams, no demons taking over her body movements, just sleep. I leave to take some medicine, and when I come back, she is still there. I get so excited. I actually jump up and down with joy until I see that her eyes are open. They are fixed in a lifeless, thousand-yard stare. The iris is almost a blue-white. Again, she is gone. So I lay there and hold her body until the morning breathes life back into it. I know the marble-cold skin will be replaced by warm, breathing silk by the time I wake again. Ashamedly, after about the sixteenth week in a fit of insanity, I kill her myself in the most respectfully loving way possible, if there is even such a thing. The look in her eyes as she realizes what I've done was worse than any death I had seen thus far. I think that look will stick with me the most. I see it in her smile when we make love, when she cries at something beautiful. I just wanted to change it, break the cycle. I'd try anything, but she would die and then be vibrant and beautiful the next morning, like nothing happened over and over again. The cliched phrase, careful what you wish for, plays through my brain like a broken record. You tell me, is it worth it? Would you be able to handle the mental anguish over and over again just to have one more day? The same day with different events, all leading to the one who loves death. I have nightmares of waking up next to her rotted face. Till death do us part, Matt, she says as her lower lip falls into my lap. It's been almost a year now since it started. I'm rapidly losing my mind. How many times do I have to watch this? As if once didn't burn it into my every thought. It will always be the last thing I see before I go to sleep and the first thing I think about in the morning. Her image is perverting to me. 
her eyes are starting to look the same alive as they do when she's dead. I hope you enjoyed a ritual misguided by author N.M. Brown as performed by yours truly. Up next, we've got a third taste of frightening fiction for you, courtesy of author Brandon Wills. In it, we'll add another to the long list of reasons not to mess with an Ouija board. As it turns out, everyone's got needs, even spirits. But when our group of would-be spiritualists find out just what their newfound contact craves, will they be able to keep it satisfied? Or will they end up on the menu? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you the Ouija board said it was hungry. My name's Henry Himura. I work for a large law firm situated near downtown Los Angeles. We've handled some of the biggest, most controversial cases in the last two decades, and have built quite a name for ourselves. I'm using a pseudonym because, as you'll hear, the story is almost fantastical, nearly too frightening to believe real. I don't want to ruin a career I've spent so much time and effort building just because some people don't want to believe the truth of what's out there. First, I just want to issue a warning. Never, ever play Kukuri-san. No matter how innocent the internet or books may make it sound, don't do it. This is the story of how my life changed forever and how I lost something so dear. Spirit boards come in all shapes and sizes, and various names as well. In the U.S., the most common one is an Ouija board. They're intended as children's games, when really, you can unleash something so powerful and evil that it may never be bottled. Spirit boards are just a portal to the other side, a way for spirits to communicate directly with the living, and that spirit can be good or a total evil menace. According to my research, you can use just about anything as your spirit board. In my native country of Japan, we played a game called Kokuri-san. With this game, you mention the spirits about your future, and they will sometimes answer, maybe not with the answers you're seeking. We would take a coin, place it on a paper with some words and numbers written on it, and the coin would slide across to answer your question. After you were finished, you were supposed to tell Kukuri-san to go home and slid the coin to the red Torji symbol at the top of the paper, and then tear the paper into 48 pieces or burn it. Almost 30 years ago, my siblings and I started playing Kukuri-san and did so a dozen or so times, before moving to America with much more than a few funny responses from the fox spirit. The last time we played Kokuri-san, my brother asked the spirit, Kokuri-san, Kokuri-san, will you move this coin? 
The coin slid across the paper in repeated circles for a few seconds, then stopped. Kokori-san, when will I become rich and famous? he asked. The coin slides slowly across the paper, and the coin was pressing so hard against the paper that I thought it would tear, but we were barely pressing on it. Something else was doing it. It spelled out F-E-E-D, then a pause, M-E. From behind us, somewhere in the dark, came a deep, guttural growl, like that of a hungry dog. We didn't own a dog. We knew this was not Kokuri-san. It was never described to act like this, or to be threatening. Something else had come through the game. My brother, panicked, running across the room to grab Father's lighter from his desk door. He set the paper on fire, and dropped it into the sink to burn, then turned on the tap to drown out the flames. I realize his mistake now, something that I wish he would have done, and maybe it could have prevented everything that would come. He forgot to tell Kokuri-san to go home before destroying the paper. He left it trapped in our world. A few weeks later, our father transferred his job with a car manufacturer to the U.S., and we moved to Seattle. At first, adjusting to the culture shock was overwhelming, but we had all taken English-language classes in school, and that made it easier. I can remember a day when we went into a toy store, and we were shocked to see that there was a popular, wildly sold board game that was like Kokuri-san, the Ouija board. Our mother forbade us from buying it, saying it would only invite trouble, and she was unaware that we had already played Kokuri-san numerous times by then. My brother and I managed to sneak over to the store and bought the Ouija board later that week. Katsuro was the most eager to buy it, which was obvious. I asked him why. Every night since that last time we played Kokuri-san, I've had these nightmares. They're too real. Sometimes I think they actually happen to me. In those dreams, I'm lying in bed, and from the corner of my eye, I can see a dark shadow beside me. I can hear it taking deep, gasping breaths, and the dripping of saliva like it's starving. It speaks to me in a growl, demanding that I feed it. I asked him, Did you ask what it wants? He paused for a moment, deep in thought, as we walked down the sidewalk back home. No, I always wake up and I can't move for a long time. Sometimes, I swear, it really is standing beside the bed like it's waiting for me to feed it or to feed on me. I could see the fear in his eyes and his voice. I had no doubt he was telling the truth. Maybe you are just dreaming, Katsuro. Dreams sometimes seem like they're real, but they're not. They're... Breathe. Dreams don't breathe into your ear while you're lying on your back and unable to scream or yell or do anything. I could only hang my head in shame because I felt terrible for doubting my brother. I wanted to believe him, but who could really believe something so outrageous without seeing it yourself? Kutsuro was never one to lie and would practically break his neck to tell the truth. 
Okay, so what do you want to do with the Ouija board? I want to speak to it. Banish it back to hell, then burn that board. This time we'll play by the rules. This time it won't follow us. He was dead serious and had the bravery of someone far older than twelve. Tears were streaming down his cheeks as he clenched his fist, his stride becoming faster and faster. That happened on a Monday. Our parents would be out the following Friday to a dinner with some of Father's executives to welcome him to the USA, and they said they would be out for hours. I was in charge because I was the oldest at fifteen, and so I had to keep an eye on my siblings. Michiko, who was fourteen at the time, and she was too preoccupied with the wonderment of American television, so Katsuro and I decided to leave her out of the plan, and we also felt like it was favor to our only sister uh, to leave her out of any chaos that might happen. I could also read English well, but my siblings weren't so great. The Ouija board was in English, of course, so I would have to translate because Katsuro couldn't. We unboxed the game, reading the rules out loud. Never play alone. Check. Never play in a graveyard. Check. It made me double-think if any were nearby, but I didn't believe there were. Never burn it. This one Katsuro became frustrated over. Why not? He cried, bemoaning. Don't know why, Katsuro. Doesn't say. They're just the rules. I don't think it'd be a good idea to question them. Never leave the planchette on the board. Why not? he asked. I don't know. I suppose it would leave the doorway open. Stop questioning the rules and just listen. Okay, fine. Never ask when you will die. And the last rule... Don't forget to say goodbye. And that's the one we forgot with Kokuri-san. Katsuro reminded me. Thunder was rolling outside, and it sounded very close to the house. Then lightning crashed, casting the whole house in a bright light like a camera flash. Yes, Katsuro, and let's not do that again. I put the rules back into the box and slammed my palms on the table. If you so much as try to break any of those rules, I will not be blamed if something gets you. I won't. Good. Now let's hurry before... That was when the lights shut off. Katsuro flipped the light switch several times with no effect. I remember groaning with indignation at the annoyance. What I hadn't noticed then, and what I wish I would have, was that... Michiko never asked what happened, or even made a sound about the power going out. We would see why later. No! It shut off the lights. It's onto our plan. And the fear was growing in his voice. Shut up, Katsuro. It's probably this storm. Get those candles that Mother keeps for emergencies. Hurry! Katsuro fetched candles with an eagerness I rarely saw in him. He was running at a pace, and I couldn't see him, but I heard him rummaging through the cabinets at a frantic pace, followed by the padding of his feet coming back down the hallway. Got him! Okay, I hope you didn't break anything, I said as I leered at him. Anyway, let's make them around the table so we can see the board better. 
I wish the power was working. His voice was quaking. I do too, but we'll have to wait for the power company to fix it. I struck a match, but it went out with an abrupt hiss. I thought that the match was just a dud, so I struck another, and the same thing happened. My annoyance was building at this point. I struck another, and another, and another, all of them snuffed out within a second of being struck. My brother found a stick lighter and tried that as well, but it did the same thing. There was no gust or blowing of the air conditioner that could cause that since the power was out. Finally, after several attempts, the spirit allowed us to light our candles as if it were mocking us. We began to play Kokori-san on the Ouija board. Katsuro went to the window by the dining room table and opened it. The ozone smell of the thunderstorm flooded the inside of the house and the loud rumbling of the thunder filled the house. We moved the planchette from the box and placed it at the bottom. After a few moments of hesitation, we both placed our hands on the planchette and started the game. Kokori-san, Kokori-san, if you're here, please move this planchette. My brother said, unsure if he was saying the word correctly. He pronounced it more like blanket, but I just shrugged and laughed. In case you haven't seen in the Ouija board, the planchette is the triangular piece that players put their hands on and is used by the spirits to point out letters and numbers. Within an instant, it began spelling out H-U-N-G-R-Y. What does it say, Henry? It says it's hungry. I replied, almost crying in my fear. I wasn't sure why I was afraid, but something about the way it jumped straight to its demand was blood-chilling. Did you move it? Did you? No, I'd never do that, Henry. I didn't. I believed him. I could feel the tightening grip of fear in my stomach. To the point, Katsuro asked, What do you want to eat? The planchette moved. It moved with such force that I remember having trouble keeping my fingers on it, almost just letting go to see if it'd just move on its own. M. E. A. T. I nearly flung my hands off the planchette and ran out of the room, but I reminded myself that I was the older one and I had to be strong for my little brother. I also wasn't sure what would happen to us if I did let go. I will find you something, Katsuro answered, nearly jumping from his chair. He was dashing toward the fridge. No, don't give it what it wants. You'll make it was all I got out before a shearing pain went down my back, a pain so strong that I found it hard to breathe. I fell to the floor, writhing in the sudden screaming pain. Gasping, I moved my hand under my shirt. I winced as it touched the pained area and saw blood when I looked at it. Kitsuro, look at my back, please. He was digging through the refrigerator by then, almost ignoring me entirely as he looked desperately for something to offer. He casually looked over his shoulder. I'll be right there, he said as he shut the fridge and came running over to me, 
his little arms carrying wrapped ground beef that he sat on the table. He looked at my back and gasped. Henry, there are three long scratches going all the way down your back. What happened? It was that spirit. It did that when I told you not to feed it. You're just going to make it stronger, Kutsuro. We both made eye contact with the ground beef, but the packages were empty. There was no sign that the packaging had been cut, torn, broken into whatsoever, just empty packages. The planchette moved again, this time without us touching it. It moved with a jerky motion, like something didn't quite know what it was doing, or like the jerky movement of computer lag. N. E. X. T. Then it slid to a blank area and back onto the board. B. L. O. O. D. Katsuro grabbed the planchette and threw it out the window as hard as his little arms could. When he turned back around, it was back on the table on the word no. Then it began to spell out Y-O-U-R-S. I moved the planchette to the word no and then to goodbye. But then it moved on its own to the word no and spelled the next word so fast that I could barely tell that it said S-I-S-T-E-R. Machaco gave out a terrifying scream, so loud that somebody would have called the police if they could have heard her over the storm. Katsuro and I rushed down the hallway to her room at the far right of the hallway. She was lying on her side under the blankets, facing the wall, still screaming. I rolled her over to examine her. Her eyes were shut, as if she were in a deep sleep, but her mouth was shrieking in bloody terror. I shook her hard several times, calling her name, trying my best to wake her, but she just kept screaming. Her arm flopped from under the blanket over to the side of the bed as I was shaking her, and I saw that her wrist was slowly dripping blood onto the carpet. It wasn't slid on the artery or anything life-threatening, but pricked, like with a small knife, and was only bleeding a few drops at a time. I knew first aid so I wrapped the wound with one of her clean socks from her dresser and told Katsura we had to end this now. As we were leaving Michako's room, the temperature in the entire house plummeted, which was unexplainable since it was late summer and the air conditioning wasn't working due to the power outage. I noticed that my breath was coming out in a cloud. The lights began to flicker then, and I saw something standing at the end of the hallway a pitch-black figure about seven feet tall, nearly as high as the ceiling. It looked like a man, but it had long, skinny claws instead of hands, and a smile filled with pointed teeth. It was gone once the flickering stopped a few minutes later. It was showing us what it was, and I knew that it was warning us to continue, or else. Katsuro and I sat down at the table, placed our hands at the board. What can we do to make you go away? The planchette moved to no, then goodbye. 
My brother sighed, but then gave out a shriek of terror as he was jerked to the floor and dragged down the hallway by some invisible force. I jumped up, grabbing his hands, pulling with everything I had, but couldn't budge him. It was going straight into his closet. He kept screaming, No! Please, no! Stop! Just stop! as he was being forced down the hallway and inside his bedroom closet. From within the closet, I saw yellow eyes and a wide smile staring back at me. I grabbed onto Katsuro's hands, trying my best to stop it, but it was no use. The closet snapped shut with a hard and powerful slam, and Katsuro went inside. Out of panic and desperation, I tried to open the closet doors, after multiple attempts, the doors finally opened. My brother was not inside. Inside were piles of styrofoam meat trays. All appeared to have been opened recently. I realized later that Katsuro had been spending his allowance on various kinds of meats for this thing. I also found another Kokuri-san paper under some of the trays. I tore it into 48 pieces along with the Ouija board, burned them and threw the ashes into the wind, thinking maybe that it had summoned him back. It didn't. He did not. It's been nearly twenty years since he went missing, and we filed that missing persons report. My parents assumed that he ran away to go back to Japan. The move had been hard on him, and he expressed his dislike of the move often, as for the meat trays, well, my parents and the police didn't mention that detail or ask about it, almost as if they just didn't notice them. For weeks I searched for my brother, finding no trace of him. Sometimes I'd sit in his closet, begging for an answer, but I'd get nothing. My parents grieved a long time, and their marriage dissolved as a result. Mother went back to Japan while she allowed father to keep us in America, where I finished school and later became a lawyer. My father once convinced me to pay a private investigator to find Katsuro, but as you may guess, they found no trace of him either. After I write this, there's an Ouija board on my dining room table. On the table, I also have some cheap ground beef, my brother's favorite toy, and something I have that I didn't, Thirty years ago, a vast knowledge on how to kill a demon. I hope you enjoyed The Ouija Board, Said It Was Hungry, by author Brandon Wills, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition, of tonight's and all of our other podcasts featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chummingtalesfordarknights.com 
where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Story Time, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Chiley. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. 
But that's alright. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.